continue from where we left off. Just a few more reflections on <clears throat> investigation, the factor of investigation. We've been looking at the qualities that make up an enlightened mind, that lead to an enlightened mind, a healthy, healthy, happy mind. The first quality is the capacity to be aware. Not only do we have this capacity to be mindful, aware, but closely related to it is the capacity to investigate, to explore, to inquire, to learn, to look carefully at something and discern its meaning, discern its character as deeply as possible. And investigation is something that uh, vichara is something we've all been doing. We've done it in many different ways and there are different levels of it. Sometimes the kind of vichara that just good common sense is referred to as embryo investigation or baby investigation. It's not that it's trivial. It's the beginnings of an investigation that goes deeper. It's a kind of similitude. It's a little, it's a lot like what Vipassana investigation is. But it isn't it. Just, for example, uh, sticking your head out the window to see the temperature and decide that it's a certain temperature. You feel the sensation, a certain temperature, and then you decide to put on an extra garment or not. There's a bit of inquiry at work there. It's, we've done it so often and we're so good at it that uh, we don't think much of it. So some of it is just having enough good sense to get in out of the rain. And it expresses itself throughout our life in all kinds of ways. Just to know the quality of mindfulness itself is a kind of investigation. Some of the things that you report in interviews, you couldn't do it if you hadn't seen into just how mindfulness was going for you. You wouldn't be able to speak intelligently and in a concrete and detailed way about how the practice is going unless you looked into it and began to see how it was in this sitting and that sitting, how it was developing or not developing. And it's very closely related. Uh, We were talking a good deal about how the practice is meant to be done all the time. Not just on a retreat, but it's a way of life, really. At a certain point, to call it a method or a technique uh, doesn't fit. It grows into just a way of living. 
And if you recall, we talked about certainly the focus is on the retreat here. Uh, the importance of the attitude, right attitude, to value all of the things that we do throughout the day here, not just the formal sitting and walking, and to give them the same respect. And a number of questions came up in interviews, slightly different, but all pointing to some concern about correct action when you're not, when it's not so clearly spelled out, like right here where you know, we have meditation instructions and in the formal walking. And much of the day here is simplified, so it's easy. But even here, there are questions. And here, again, something akin to investigation called sati sampajanya, where it's a kind of wisdom in action, where mindfulness is not just focused on a small piece of the world, but it kind of encompasses the context, the situation, and it picks up what's happening. Sometimes you have to look very carefully to figure out what's appropriate here. You need mindfulness and something else that goes along with it to discern what is this, what's happening here, so that you know what correct action is. If you don't understand the situation, then the likelihood of your action being appropriate is much less. For example, uh, before we had a dishwasher here, a machine, uh, we used to do the dishes ourselves. So you'd finish your meal and then uh, there'd be a a number of sinks and you would line up and uh, wash your own dishes. And often the instructions were to slow down dramatically. And so everyone would be doing very, very slow walking and doing many things slowly. And suddenly it would be at the end of the meal and you'd see a long line of people waiting to wash their dishes. And it'd be somebody washing his or her dishes very, very slowly, <laughs> this way and that way. And the rest of us were having, you know, just going crazy. Okay. There was no inquiry. In other words, there was attention to the dishes, and I'm sure they came out spotless. But something was missing there. In other words, there was... Okay, so the practice is not about becoming a bigger misfit than we were to begin with. It isn't. Um, and there are other questions, just how do you, what is correct, not only here, but one, once we get outside. One uh, instance was reported to me. I wasn't present, of uh, during a retreat many years ago here where apparently someone fell over in the middle of the sitting and was just stretched out, you know, and people were just sitting like this. The person was lying, you know, on the floor. It took a while until somebody uh, decided that maybe we better call a doctor. Okay, so that isn't practice. That isn't correct practice. You might say, well, but they, they violated the rule of this, you know, this, the bell hadn't rung. <laughs> the bell hadn't rung yet. You know, we're not, we're not supposed to move. Okay. So you can see how pliability, kind of an interest, uh, it's akin to investigation to understand how to apply the practice, how to apply mindfulness is precious but it's precious once we leave here into a much more complicated world, we have to begin to see what's happening. Um, 
And these kinds of questions, there was another question that was concerned about the latest instructions, which, as you know, um, you just are attentive. No agenda, just whatever turns up. That's what you're aware of. And the whole emphasis is on surrender and relaxing and allowing whatever is there to turn up. You know, you don't have any particular plans or projects. And that was a little confusing for the person. Is it, with all this allowing and letting everything happen, how would that fit into life as it is? Okay. And it reminded me of something, uh, which I hadn't thought of in many years, actually. This actually happened, and it later became a cartoon, an actual cartoon. Uh, some years ago in Cambridge, before we had a center there, and the, for those who live in Cambridge, we, the class, this, the Pasana was taught, I taught on, on one evening a week at the old Cambridge Baptist Church, which is a very large room, about this side or size almost. And there'd be lots of people, and there was a platform off to the side when there were performances. And that's where everyone would pile their shoulder bags and briefcases and pocketbooks and, you know, with their money in it, everything was be piled over there. And the instructions would be f- familiar, you know, just allow everything to happen, just uh, let everything assume its true nature, etc. And one day we were all in there meditating with our eyes closed, deeply contemplative, and someone came in who had obviously cased the joint and just made off with about 10 or 15 wallets while we were all sitting quietly <laughs> being blissed out. A cartoon which uh, elaborated on this illustrates a little bit the direction that I'm going in. One of the people there had uh, submitted from time to time cartoons to the New Yorker magazine. And so he took the ingredients, this is actual situation, but in the cartoon uh, it has someone who looks a lot like me. I had a mustache then, uh, a little like a Mexican bandito. You know. <laughs> Or the way Hollywood portrays Mexican banditos. I don't know what Mexican banditos really look like. Are there any Mexican banditos? <laughs> Was it just in Hollywood? I don't know. Um, so it's someone with, you know, these kind of professor-type glasses and a mustache sitting, and the instructions are just allow everything to happen, uh, let everything follow its own nature, let go, surrender, etc. You know, you don't need to hear all, you've heard it enough. And in the cartoon, while that's happening, people are sitting in meditation, their eyes are a bit open. And there are people climbing in through the windows, <laughs> cra- crawling in. Uh, there's a moving van outside on the bottom, and they're moving the furniture out. Uh, people's wallets, pockets are being, everything is going on, and we're not doing anything, you know. So, is that correct action? Now, maybe, I know, like then, this was about, oh, I don't know, a while ago, uh, probably the normal thing to do, we'd we'd say something, hey, what's going on here? Now, maybe now, uh, where, you know, people just as soon kill you as look at you, Maybe it would be wise, you know, to just allow everything to ha- let criminals just be criminals and let their criminal nature just unfold and uh, in its natural criminal way. It might save our life, is what I'm saying. 
Okay. So please understand that uh, common sense sensitivity is very akin to this investigation we're talking about. Okay. Um, as we move from that kind of keen interest in what's happening, what is this? What is happening here? Not the words, but the interest, the looking, the direct perception. When it's applied to our practice, and we've already begun to do it, uh, it would be looking into, let's say, the breathing, for example. And when it becomes finally really vipassana investigation uh, is when it is applied to what are called the three marks. Seeing impermanence, seeing suffering where there's suffering, and seeing the absence of a core or a solid self, an autonomous self. Uh, looking into phenomena, the mindfulness lands on phenomena. It's placed on whatever it is. And there's something a little bit extra. It grows out of it, really. As the mindfulness becomes more steady, uh, we look more and more carefully into what it, whatever the object is, and we begin to see it in detail. We begin to see its features, its characteristics, just as you look more carefully at anything. It's not exactly what it looked like when you have an initial gloss, a kind of just an image of it. And then when you look carefully, it's not that at all. In, this, in the sutra, Anapanasati, on the, the full awareness of breathing, the investigation, full-fledged vipassana, begins with the 13th contemplation, which is breathing in, the yogi sees the impermanence of phenomena. Breathing out, the yogi sees the impermanence of phenomena. It means that while you're breathing in and breathing out, you see that everything, that everything arises and passes away. Now, the 13th contemplation, which for those of you who know the sutra, uh, can be carried out in any number of ways, and I'll mention just a few, so you realize that there isn't just one way for you to investigate. You can take the breath itself. When we're working with the breath, and the emphasis is just sticking to the breath, as we did for the, for the first part of the retreat, the emphasis was not on, on really seeing that the breath is impermanent, although you can't help but notice that. What the emphasis was in the shamatha practice, the samadhi, was uh, bringing attention to the object and staying with it. Now, you don't, if you, in a, in a split second, if you switch, instead of simply being in touch with the breathing, but now you also look at the breathing from the point of view of coming and going, that it arises and passes away, immediately you're now doing vipassana. Vipassana doesn't have to do with any particular object. It has to do with how you relate to the object, how you perceive it, what you see, in the, the universal nature of what it is that you're perceiving. So you could uh, examine the same old in-breath and out-breath that we've been working on since Friday night. And you can do it in any number of ways. For example, you could begin to notice, as we probably you all have noticed, that sometimes the breath is deep, sometimes the breath is shallow. The first two contemplations of the sutra say, uh, breathing in, the yogi sees a long breath, 
deep breath, breathing out the yogi sees a shallow, uh, a deep breath. The second one is breathing in and out the yogi sees a shallow breath. And those are kind of the beginnings of introducing us to calming and steadying the mind and the body. Now, if you wanted to switch that, switch to vipassana, if you, you were still watching length of breath, you could take up length of breath as a contemplation. And you watch the breath begin to, uh, as your attention becomes more continuous, you begin to see that the breath becomes deeper and a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper. And then all it takes is one negative thought. Perhaps you've experienced this. And suddenly the breath becomes very shallow again. Uh, And so you can watch the length of the breath keep changing. It becomes more shallow and more shallow and then deeper and then deeper and then shallow and then deeper. And so you could take that quality of the breath. You could take fineness or coarseness. Probably you've noticed by now that sometimes the breath is very, very fine, very subtle, like uh, silk or satin, just so smooth. And at other times, it's quite coarse. It can even hurt sometimes as it goes in and out of the nostrils. If there's a blockage, sometimes it can actually be slightly painful and unpleasant. So you could take the quality of the breathing and just whatever quality you you seem to uh, have noticed in the breathing. And as you examine it, you could begin to see that it changes. So now that's vipassana, because what you're beginning to see is that it doesn't stay the same. You could take what the breathing feels like. Sometimes the breath is very, very pleasant when you're breathing in and out. It's just a joy to be sitting and breathing. Very often, when it is like that, it's also fine, subtle, and and deep, but not always. And sometimes the breath is not pleasant at all. And very often it's neutral. You don't have a strong feeling one way or another. You're just breathing. And if you ask the the person, as we do sometimes in interviews, the person will say, well, you know, it's not unpleasant or unpleasant. So any of those qualities can be looked at It's still the breath. We're just working with the breath, but only now we're using the breath as an an occasion to develop wisdom. It becomes the basis for developing wisdom that everything that arises passes away. Things change. Very, very important. It's the door to the most profound teachings in the the Buddha's uh, teaching. Okay. So in that case, you have never even left the breath. You can continue from Friday night and mainly be with the breathing and switch from shamatha to vipassana. There was one person in Cambridge who, for some reason, just was intrigued with length of breath. And he used that as an object to develop vipassana for quite a while. And it was very rich and fruitful. It's what draws you, what interests you. That's what will be helpful. But for the most part, uh, you probably won't just limit it to the breathing. The 13th contemplation suggests also that uh, since the sutra itself, the Satipatthana Sutra, which is basic to our practice, and Anapana Sati, full awareness of breathing, they're both very, very similar. One uses the breath more than the other to tap the same things. Awareness of the body, awareness of feelings, awareness of the mind, and the last four, the lawfulness that kind of holds it all together in, in the Full Awareness of Breathing Sutra. And one of those laws is impermanence. 
So now, and we've already begun to do this, investigation could mean while breathing in, uh, if it's the body, you feel certain sensations in the body. You focus in on the body and you can see that they change. Let's say it's pain. It could become more intense. Then it can become less intense. It can stop altogether and then begin again and then shift to a slightly different part of the knee or wherever it is. If it's feelings, feelings are happening all the time, life versus is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, you begin to see that feelings keep changing. Not only in the breath, but wherever you look. Life is rather pleasant right now, then it's not so pleasant, then it's neither pleasant or unpleasant. And so you can begin to investigate that, and then the mind itself. You'll see moods arise and pass away. The mind, the greedy state of the mind, and then it's gone. The angry state of the mind, then it's gone. The mind is restless. We hate meditation. We hate being here. Then it's just so calm and peaceful. We love it here. And so you see all the different mind states, the different feelings, the different ways in which the bodily experience is. And you experience them all with care and attention. You see them all that, without exception, they arise and pass away while breathing in and breathing out. And that grows quite naturally out of the instructions given yesterday. I hope, I hope everyone is clear on that. And so, when you're practicing, uh, while breathing in and breathing out, things turn up. And at a certain point, in addition to being aware of them, uh, especially as the, the concentration improves and you have good energy, what you may wish to or may come to you quite naturally, you're already seeing it, you can't miss it, but in a more explicit way, as more of a specific contemplation, you begin to notice the universal characteristics of whatever is there. The breath is changing and whatever else is happening is changing. Or is literally, there's just an ocean of impermanence. And out of that, of course, comes all kinds of other understandings. But to begin with, let's leave it at that. It leads to an understanding of the unsatisfactoriness in life. It leads to the understanding of what is a self. What really is a self? When we say self, what do we mean? Who am I? Not just as a, a, an exercise in language or dictionary meanings, but when we look at ourselves, what is, what is that? What does it mean to be a person? Okay, so I hope that some of this um, gives you a sense of the factor of investigation. It's useful at many, many levels. And in the... Um, some of the ancient commentaries, they suggest uh, some of the uh, adjunct practices or uh, ways to help this quality of investigation develop. One, very similar to what we mentioned with mindfulness. If you want to develop mindfulness, hang out with mindful people. Don't hang out with people who are distracted all the time, not paying attention. Investigation is similar. If you want to develop the quality of investigation, uh, spend time with people who are interested in learning about themselves, who are interested in going into the nature of, of their own self. 
people who are looking to the source of why things are the way they are. Uh, rather than, as is so often, in the ca- often the case, when we spend time avoiding looking at ourselves, it's always someone else is the problem. We always blame someone else, so we deny it. Or we just read about it. We, we've read everything there is about whatever it is. Uh, but this kind of investigation, and sometimes with very profound, uh, wonderful insights into the human nature, it can become a great book. But this level of investigation requires, it must be, each one of us must do it. A lot of what we call learning and understanding is borrowed. It's second-hand knowledge. It's not our own. We got it from someone else. The Buddha, Krishnamurti, Suzuki Roshi, Thich Nhat Hanh, it's endless, or whoever you like. And it has a ring of truth and it's very satisfying and very fulfilling. But, and this is the link between Dharma teaching, the study of Dharma books, Dharma teachings in books or verbally, and practice. Uh, inquiry is central to the Buddha's teaching. The teachings are presented, but then it's for us to see if they're really true, to confirm them in our own life. Blind faith is not part of this teaching. Faith is important. We'll go into that in a moment. There is a provisional openness to the possibility of all the things that are said that are possible here. But the Buddha himself, in a very famous uh, sutra, he came through a town and it sounds like very much like Cambridge, uh, possibly Berkeley as well, and you know I'm sure there are a few other places throughout the world. And these people were uh, every teacher under the sun passed through there. Uh, you know, it'd be like California, I suppose, any kind. You know. uh, and all of these teachings and teachers, and they'd all been there, and the people were just, these people were, were very keen and interested in what was going on, but they were confused. And they said, when the Buddha came, said, well, here's another one. And they went to him, and they said, you know, all these people come through, and they each maintain they have the truth, and they uh, refer back to ancient lineage and great sacred books, and teachers who are, look very wise and uh, swear by what they're doing, and then someone else comes and someone else, and now here are you, another one. And in a nutshell, what the Buddha suggested was uh, to not put too much stock in how old a teaching was or how ancient the uh, teachers or how enlightened people's teachers were supposed to be, but to take up a teaching, to put it into practice, and to find out, and if it led to fulfillment, away from suffering, to freedom, then to keep doing it. And if it didn't, to drop it. Very, a very modern attitude, very akin to the scientific attitude. If you don't take up the theory and test it, you'll never know. Now, you can try and figure it out in your head, and many of us do, especially very well-educated people. We do do that. And of course, at a certain point, that has to stop. Sometimes simpler people who are not very well educated actually become much wiser than us. But wisdom here is something a little different. I'd hope to get into energy tonight, too. I'm not sure we'll be able to. Let me give you an example of what I mean to emphasize this. I sense that probably everyone in this room knows this, the importance of firsthand understanding. 
I spoke to one of my teachers in Korea. We were talking and he wanted to know uh, about philosophers and philosophy. He had read a little, but he didn't know much about it in the West. And I described what it was and teachers that I'd had at the university and so forth. He was very positive towards it. But what he didn't know was that philosophy was love of wisdom, and he, he heard that and he got all excited about it. But what he didn't, was strange to him, is that it didn't follow that people who were philosophers worked on themselves. And I, he couldn't get that. I went over it and over and said, no, if they do, that's their own choice. But that has nothing to do with being, a, let's say, a professional philosopher. It's, it's uh, something quite different. And he said, but how can adults do that? How can adults waste their time like that? <laughs> this is not to put philosophers down. Uh, but clearly, love of wisdom, uh, in, in terms of this, is something that has to be alive. It has to be something that you dig out of yourself. Otherwise, it can be interesting and helpful and nice to tell your children, you know, before they go to sleep. I was fed on, you know, Grimm, uh, not Grimm's, uh, Aesop's fables and Krilov, Russian wisdom. It was very wonderful to get those teachings, but nothing compared to when you see it in yourself. Um, Personally, when I went to the Orient for the first time, uh, I think I was a lot like the, the philosophers that I just talked about. I know I was. It wasn't that long ago that I had been in the university, and this is not to put the university down. Obviously, many wonderful things go on in the university. It's more to emphasize what we're attempting to do here. And since uh, many, most, if not all of us, have been to school, it's important to see the difference and the relationship. Flying over on the way to, to Japan, uh, I was sitting next to my teacher who was uh, Sansanim, a Korean Zen master, many of you, some of you know. And we were sitting there and I opened up my, I had a carry-on bag and I had, it was mainly all these very juicy Dharma books. And so I picked them up, I started reading one and he looked at me kind of annoyed. He said, what are those? And I said, oh, these are good Dharma books that I, you know, look at this one, uh, Hui Ning, and look at that one. And, and he said, why are you bringing them to uh, Japan and Korea? I said, well, they're great books. I want to study them. And he looked at me almost pained. He said, oh, no, no more study, not this time. For this period of time, no books, no study, no reading. I said, well, I'm going to be there a whole year. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know. And he said, no reading for one year. Well, for a New York Jewish intellectual, can you imagine? I mean, that's, you know, like a sentence to solitary confinement. You know, you're going to Alcatraz for one year. But I did it. And I have to tell you, at the beginning, it was one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life. I literally didn't read any Dharma for a year, which for me is very difficult. And I went through symptoms like, I think, with drug addiction and alcoholism, of just going crazy, uh, reading English off ketchup bottles. You know? uh, and, and I did cheat a few times. I would ask, 
Koreans, I remember there was a monument of a famous Korean Zen teacher, and I just begged this line, please tell me what it is in English. You know? <laughs> and we went through each line. I, oh, it's so fulfilling. <laughs> I'm trying to emphasize something. And then one of the teachers I worked with there, Byak Josanin, was illiterate. And he thought the world was flat. And he was radiant. I mean, just I, I, the only way I can describe him, he was radiant. And he never gave many Dharma talks. He, he taught mainly through physical labor. They didn't make so much of, you know, it's not just sitting. Uh, physical labor, and if you wanted to work with him, you had to, you know, carry stones and saw things and carry things around. And of course, he also did say a lot. He was, people came from all over Korea to, to see him to learn how to live, essentially. And he was illiterate. And then we got to, uh, uh, three of us tried to explain to him that the world is round, not flat. And he went, oh, no, come on. <laughs> and we tried in so many ways, and he couldn't get it. He just couldn't get it. He said, how could that be? People would walk off the air, you know. You know. And finally, you know, we were getting nowhere. It was an impasse. And finally, he looked at it and he said, okay, okay. Maybe you're right. Let's say maybe I'm just a stupid old monk. So the world is round, and you know that, and I don't. But are you any happier for knowing it? <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> he said, so you've gotten to the moon. Are the people who landed on the moon, do they know who they are? They found some stones up there, but they don't know who they are. I said, yeah, I guess you're right. Do you see what I'm trying to say? It's a different kind of understanding. The investigation here is... Uh, personal, it's intimate, and it's something that's um, the hallmark of Vipassana practice. Uh, it's really the book, the main book to read is ourselves. Now, this is not to say to not study. By the way, at the end of the year, I, of course, I did start reading again. It's never been the same. I can't read anywhere near as much. I would, could never go back to the university. I wouldn't even be able to get a BA. I mean, they just drum me, throw me out freshman year or something. I read and I enjoy it, but reading is much more for me now uh, connected to practice so that reading is alive insofar as it suggests something about real life and then there's the possibility of, of working with it and testing it and seeing if it's true. And I hope that's the spirit of these Dharma talks or any of the books that you read or future learning that you undergo if you're drawn to this path. Uh, study is definitely part of the path. It can be very, very helpful. Study and then reflection on what you study, these are uh, basically using the intellect. But then finally it's meditative investigation, the direct seeing of what it is that teachers and books are maintaining. We'll take up effort, um, effort, uh, energy, and effort as an enlightenment factor next time. Can we have some silence, please?
let me leave you as a prelude to go into effort or energy. Just a, a core idea having to do with it. Energy and effort as an enlightenment factor. For purposes of what we're doing, because we're in an intensive retreat, the main meaning of it is the energy that takes the mind to an object. The energy that employs mindfulness, that activates the mindfulness, the energy that, that moves the attention to the object. So for our, for our purposes, uh, keeping that up all day long, having the energy to keep coming back to the present moment, to keep coming back to the breath or, or the walking or uh, what's happening in consciousness or washing dishes, it takes effort and energy to do that which has to be done in a certain way with balance. And then I'll leave you with this reflection. See what you can learn yourself about this. Obviously, we go through cycles. We get tired, discouraged. And also, some of the objects that are part of our practice, if something comes up and it's, let's say, a powerful fear or a deep loneliness or some mourning for something that's over, uh, if, uh, put it positively, when, e- when energy is developed, dharma energy or effort, uh, the effort enables us to move our attention to an object that by and large we don't want to look at. It's not enough. The effort's not enough. The effort, in a sense, takes the mindfulness to the object and then investigation, uh, that which mindfulness contemplates wisdom understands. And so we have to find ways of uh, arousing energy in ourselves. And we'll go into that in some detail next time. Because as we know, sometimes we have lots of energy and the practice sails along. And at other times, we don't. We get lazy, we get tired, we get discouraged. Or what it is that we're being asked to look at is something that, by and large, we haven't had much practice in doing, and that is turning to something that's unattractive, frightening, anger, etc. And so uh, if we can have energy at a certain level to back up, to activate mindfulness, to enable, if the mindfulness doesn't get to the object, then of course no wisdom is going to come out of it. First-hand wisdom. You can theorize, you can tell me right now all kinds of brilliant things about what's happening. But this is an intimate seeing in that moment. The wisdom has to be seen in that moment, and then it's useless. It's over again. And then in the next moment. It's, we're not trying to fill up a spiral notebook with insights. So in a sense, it's always fresh. Anyway, see about, reflect on your own effort. Uh, between now and next time. Uh, you have to use investigation to very often to see what effort is like, whether to sit, the late night sitting or not. You can begin this evening. If you use investigation, sensitivity, caring, to look into just what level of energy do I have? And as you get better at that, it's, 
uh, and the mind will tell you stories and say, oh, you're so exhausted, go upstairs, have a hot chocolate and have someone tuck you in in bed and don't stay in that big bad meditation hall. <laughs> Take a hot bath first. And put on your nice warm pajamas. And then another voice will say, that's not true at all. You know, you sit down in that meditation hall. You sit until you taste, till the, till the stars, till the sun comes up in the morning. Even if you're exhausted, if blood is pouring out of you. <laughs> well, which one is true? I don't know. We have to find out from moment to moment. Okay. Back to the more mundane, a bit of walking, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.